Hello and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Raziel and my incredible guest today is Mark Taffet. Mark is the president at Mark Taffet Media and the president of the MMA Pro League. But you may realize or remember him as the senior vice president of HBO Sports and Pay-Per-View. Mark is the gentleman who created HBO Sports and Pay-Per-View, ran it for 25 years, and made it into the multi-billion dollar company inside the company that it is. This may be one of the coolest conversations I've ever had, getting to understand what it takes and how he was capable of doing what he did. And I'm not here to sell it. You guys just have to listen and, and hear it for yourself. But Mark was such an incredible guest. He was so much fun to hear all the stories and the people that he's met and the lives that he's impacted was absolutely incredible. So without further ado, here is Mark Taffet. Today on the For the Love of Sports podcast, my special guest is Mark Taffet, president of Mark Taffet Media and president of the MMA Pro League. He was a senior vice president at HBO of HBO Sports and Pay-Per-View. Mark, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing great, thanks. Nice to see you. Pleasure. Right, we can see each other finally. Yes. We're all stuck in quarantine. It's kind of nice to have these face-to-face conversations this is my new way of networking just get to ask a bunch of people some questions and thankfully i've got the opportunity to talk to you and about your incredible career but the first question i have for everybody on the for the love of sports podcast mark is why do you love sports so much um my dad is the short answer so uh my father was a huge sports fan everything he worked uh six days a week in a restaurant i used to see him just on mondays and that meant that I saw him from 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. between you know, when I got home from school till when I had to do my homework at night. And uh, we always talked sports. We played sports. Uh, we, baseball, football, basketball. So year round, we were busy. My father was a great athlete, played a lot of ball in high school, many different sports, was a state champion handball player a long time ago at the famous Week Wake High School in New Jersey, where... Philip Roth uh, went, graduated from, and wrote his books around those scenarios. And um, my dad loved the Yankees. He loved uh, the football Giants and the basketball Knicks. So I spent a lot of time, probably since I was about four years old, uh, in, all, in all the stadiums that those teams played. And uh, we knew a lot of the local writers in New Jersey from the old Newark Star-Ledger, um, and we used to go all the time. And when we weren't uh, at the games, we would talk about the games. Uh, I used to sleep with a radio under my pillow to listen to uh, Marv Albert call mm-hmm. the Knicks games as a kid. My father used to uh, point out the size of Mickey Mantle's forearms as he sat on one knee getting ready in the on-deck circle. And um, it, it's, it, it's poetry for me. It's poetry and beautiful music when I think of those Great times. Actually, a very funny story. So in 1969, my father took me to a New York Mets uh, twi-night doubleheader. They used to have those. They'd start at 5.30 and play two games. And we, we didn't have much money, so we always sat up in the cheap seats up top. 
In fact, uh, I've got the cheap seats in my basement. People always say, why did you get nice. the best seats? You can afford them. I said, no, no, I get the seats where I sat. Mm -hmm. So we went to the game and the Cincinnati Reds are playing the Mets and Tony Perez is up. It's the seventh inning of the second game. And my father says, come on, let's move down. It's time to move down. Most people are gone. And as we got to field level and started coming out toward the field through that big runway, all of a sudden you heard that great <sighs> sound of the crowd cheering on their feet. And um, I see all the people standing. And next thing I know, I hear plunk and a ball hits on the ground. So I go running for the ball. I didn't see anything except that baseball. And I went to get it and I dove for it. And some guy tried to grab the ball. So I stepped on his hand, I remember. Oh. Grabbed the ball. The guy came back with his other hand and tried to grab it. So I elbowed him and leaned into him like a great Willis Reed check under the boards, getting a rebound. And I got the ball and I held it up in the air. And I said, dad, dad, I got it. And the guy on the ground says, that's great. I'm so proud of you, son. Oh my goodness, that's so funny. Yeah, was it, my dad. Yep. And oh, uh, that's good. God bless him. May he rest in peace at his funeral. I uh, told us when I was eulogizing him, I held up the baseball and told that story. And, uh, you know, that's what my dad was all about. I once called my dad in 1996. Um, I was doing a, a tour with the Vander Holyfield for one of his upcoming fights. We were at Madison Square Garden and we were in the, the beautiful Sweet 200, they used to call it, where a lot of VIPs would go. And I brought a Vander and Lennox Lewis there. And I went into the men's room and at the urinals, there were five urinals, of course, lined up. Bradley, Reed, Frazier, and Monroe. I was Dave DeBusher. I think Dave had just passed away, may he rest in peace at the time. Mm -hmm. And all I could think of was if I could get a picture of this. Yep. And I, I called my father from inside the men's room saying, Dad, you're not going to believe this. I'm DeBusher. And he was like crying. He was so happy. And that's yeah. so funny. Anyway, oh, that's I how I became it. a sportsman. And that's and that's it, man. I mean, it's just the the connections that sports brings to families, mm -hmm. to friends. I mean, like I can become very quick when you start telling me Met stories, man. We're good friends now, uh, whether you like it or not, right? Yeah. Like we will always be connected through that. And it's such a, a low common denominator. But again, you know, as I was telling you, you know, you've been to a couple World Series, especially Mets World Series. I was mm -hmm. able to go to one. 2015 and there's that connection you know there, again there's that energy in the stadium with everybody rooting for the same thing you see all these celebrities walking around they all want the same thing I mean they probably showed Jerry Seinfeld and Chris Rock on the Jumbotron 18 yes. times or whatever that game yeah, yeah. and it's just so cool when everybody's there and everybody's working towards that common goal of just rooting for your favorite team now we yeah. have very very little out uh, you know we have little effect on the outcome now in certain cases yes I you know crowd noise does help but it's just so cool just kind of seeing us everybody together as one. And, you know, it's incredible with those stories with your dad. Um, it's awesome that, you know, not only were you fighting him, but he was very clearly trying to fight you for the ball as well. So it's, oh, yeah. uh, it's kind of cool how that story worked. And I think yeah. that's, that's pretty cool. And <laughs> man, there's, there's nothing like it. There's absolutely nothing like it. So you, you grow up a sports fan and you just grow up loving sports, I guess. Um, so first I want to say congrats. We both went to Rutgers. So uh, are you oh, wow. raw for that one? I do like that. You eventually went on to UPenn. So, Kudos to you for taking that step what you, up. What year did you graduate? I graduated Rutgers in 2014. I, oh, well, I'm a few years older. I graduated in 1979. My freshman year at Rutgers, 1976, um, 
and this is a coronavirus story actually because I was looking up YouTube videos of my uh, sports life as a youth and I ran or looked at all types of videos from all the teams that we were just talking about. In 1976, my freshman year, the Rutgers Scarlet Knights went 31 and 0. They were ranked number two in the nation and all five starters made it to the NBA. And they used to play in a, a place called The Barn. It was about a 60 year old building where mm -hmm. paint chips used to fall from the ceiling when the crowd screamed. And you used to have to sleep out overnight to get your tickets. And I, I had my dad and me, of course, so I used to sleep out. And that's how I met my wife now of 40 years. Look at that. Uh, we met at Rutgers and we uh, went to the games together. I figured if she slept out online to get tickets, she was definitely going to be worth spending a few years with. Absolutely, man. Congratulations <laughs> and kudos to you for that one. And yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's so unfortunate. We finally have a good team again for the first time in 25 years or whatever oh, yeah. it is. And uh, you know, unfortunately, I mean, it looks, the, the future looks bright. Let's say yes. that I'm excited for, you know, who we have coming back and some of the prospects that are coming in and, you know, maybe, maybe not as great a team, maybe not, you know, maybe a better team we'll see, but I really am hopeful for the future that, you know, next year is the year we get to punch our ticket to the dance and yes, man, that would be, that would be something. Um, I think it'll happen. I, I hope so, man. And yeah. I just think, so I, I just wanted to, to throw that in there. I did see, I don't think we spoke about that before. So I thought no. that's, it's always nice connecting with the, uh, you know, Rutgers alums, uh, I was actually just had another conversation with a, a lady and she was telling me, you know, she's been out West and the further West you go, the more impressive it becomes that you went to Rutgers, right? You know, when you're <laughs> yes. in New Jersey, when you're that in New York, true. whatever, when you go out to California, people are, you know, like, wow, they're very impressed. So I always like going out West, I always make sure to carry my uh, Rutgers sweatshirt. So but, did you choose to go to Rutgers or did, did you back into it? Uh, no, I, I chose to go there. I, my original goal was to go to Penn State. Um, okay. I went to Raritan, Raritan Valley Community College, shout out mm -hmm. RVCC here in New Jersey. And yeah. after two years of going to school there, I wasn't going to be accepted into Penn State's business school mm. with two years. I was, they would only take one year. So I'd have to go to the business oh, school for wow. three. So I was like, well, I'm not going to just take an extra year of school. That makes no sense. So went to Rutgers, still a great school. Still, mm. I'm here now. So I wouldn't change a thing. Uh, you know, I get to chat yeah. with you on a Monday at four o'clock. So it could so definitely be I, worse. I, just a quick story. So I got there because... Um, uh, I remember coming home with good board scores and straight A's and my dad said, my dad owned restaurants. And as I said, we used to work together all the time. That's how I saw him as a kid. And he said, listen, I just want you to know, I'm so proud of you and you can go anywhere, anywhere in the country, anywhere you want to go to college. He says, I just have one requirement. I said, what's that? He says, you got to be within 30 minutes of the restaurant so you can help me on weekends when the cook doesn't show up. Love it. So that was Rutgers and Seton Hall. I chose Rutgers. I was going to say Seton Hall. I don't know, depending on where the restaurants were, maybe yeah. maybe Trenton State back then, now TCNA. Newark area. He was a Newark yeah. kid. Okay. So yeah, yep. Seton Hall was it. There you go. But I'm I happy mean, with the choice. I was going to say, it could be a lot worse. Rutgers mm -hmm. is a great school. Again, here yes. in the Northeast, for whatever reason, it gets a weird not yeah. a bad rap, just a weird yeah. rap, but you know, it's a, it's a great school. I'm very grateful uh, that I went there. So very excited about that. So you, you graduate from Rutgers, you go to UPenn, get a master's degree there. Congratulations on that Wharton school of business. If I'm not mistaken, mm. you then move on. And you told me the story already and kind of how you got into HBO, but it, yeah. it took a stop along the way, if I'm not mistaken yeah. on how you eventually got there. So if you don't mind telling everybody out there yeah. uh, a little bit about how you got to yeah, one of so the most incredible companies in the world. Yeah, it's very interesting. So, you know, I had the food business in my blood from my days growing up, uh, you know, as a restaurant kid with my family working with them. And I had this Wharton MBA. Um, and so I interviewed for jobs. And back then, just 
boy, jobs were so plentiful. What a, what a comparison to right now in this country. I had 18 job offers when I graduated Wharton in 1981. It was just incredible. And I feel bad about it with all the kids looking for jobs now. But uh, I took a job at General Foods in the Bird's Eye Frozen Foods Division. And they made the best vegetables around, you know, the, the yellowest corn and the, and the greenest peas. And the big competitor was Green Giant. I worked in a new business development group. I was the finance member who did all the financial models and analysis. And I worked with a marketing person and an operations person. Operations meaning a guy in uh, Iowa who worked in the fields and grew the crops. And our job was to put together new products, introduce them into the marketplace for six months, and then turn them over to the established brand group. And um, I did that for about a year, year and a half. Uh, and I got very antsy because I saw that they had a graduating class mentality. People got promoted when the students from their class were there for two years. Everybody got roughly the same raise. And um, it was a great place to work, but you really couldn't differentiate yourself. And that, that wasn't going to work for me. I really wanted a place where I could, if I worked hard, could be differentiated and could get ahead and achieve. So I started to interview for jobs. Meanwhile, back at General Foods, every three months, we used to do presentations. The finance guys would do presentations to the assistant controllers and controllers of the company. It was a huge company. So there would be 150, 200 young analysts like me doing presentations to four or five uh, guys. Mm -hmm. Didn't know the assistant controllers or the controllers. You know, they were years, uh, decades ahead of us experience-wise. Anyway, I get a call one day from a gentleman named Andy Kaplan. He says, Mark, I don't know if you know me. I don't know if you remember me. I was the assistant controller of General Foods. I saw you do those presentations quarterly. I love the work you did. I remembered it. I now work at this new company called HBO. And I said, HBO, what is it? He said, oh, it's cable television and it's a movie channel. You buy movies, watch them on TV. We have some sports. We have some boxing, which you will come back to that, I'm sure. And um, he said, uh, just get over here. This company's growing like crazy. We need young MBAs like you. Just get into the company in any job you can. And it's going to work out. So I remember going home saying to my wife, boy, this is a big decision. HBO, I don't know about this. This sounds like a, a big risk. And we talked and I said, you know what? They're giving me a chance to get ahead. The guy you know, said, you come here and, you, and, you, and it works. And the company's growing like a weed. Let's go. So uh, I took a job at HBO in the finance department where I actually had to do accounting and close the books every month for the sales and marketing group. I didn't know a darn thing about debits and credits. Mm -hmm. I was a finance major at, at Penn at Wharton where I did a lot of financial planning and strategic planning and analytical models and regression analyses, but I didn't know anything about debits and credits. Lo and behold, a young man sitting in the cubicle next to me started about two weeks before me. His name was Rob Roth. Well, Rob was an accountant. He was a CPA. If you flash forward about 25 years, I'm running HBO pay-per-view and Rob is the CFO of HBO. Look and the two that. of us coincidentally met. So I used to do his financial planning and analysis work and he did my accounting work. And it was, yeah. uh, it was a great team. And 25 years later, it was still a great team. Love it. That's awesome. Yeah. So and that's just, how I got there. I, I think it's so important for people to hear that aspect of the story. And that's why it's always something that I like to talk about is How'd you get in where you got in? And there's so many different ways to get into sports. You know, there's, you could go the sports yeah. management route. You can go and, you know, work in marketing or sales or accounting or finance for a hundred years and then mm -hmm. kind of pop in the side door. I think it's really interesting 
you know, you were, uh, you were looking for positions and I don't believe in coincidences. And this gentleman saw your work. He knew what you were doing. And, and it's, it's funny, you know, I was smiling while you're telling the story. Cause you're like, man, HBO, it's going to be a risk. We don't know. And like now, you know, flash forward, look at where, you know, yeah. HBO has become and, you know, you've helped, helped build it to what it is. It's you know, but, this behemoth of a company, but back then, of course, you yeah, had no was, idea. They had a few million subscribers, very, um, I think, educational and instructional for, for people coming out of school and looking for jobs. So I was in a company where you were in a box and as great a company as it was, it didn't offer uh, enough advancement quickly enough. It didn't offer a way to differentiate myself and it didn't offer enough um, exposure outside of the job I was doing. Contrast that to HBO, a company that's growing like crazy you came in and got very little direction and you had to run and run and run in any direction you could. And they allowed on the best to find the right direction, put themselves in the right place and make a successful career. And I tell young people all the time today, when I speak to them, one of the most important things is think of a, of a job search and a career search or career planning as a tree with branches and more branches and more branches off of that. And if you, if you cut off the big thick branches and you're left with just a few or one branch or a tree trunk, there's no place for you to go. But if you're in a company that's got many branches and many branches off of that and many branches off of that, you end up with an unlimited number of opportunities because you're talking to people within your department. You're talking to people throughout the company. In my case, I got to travel. I got to talk to people outside the company. So you're meeting all of these people in so many places with so much exposure. And if you're the right kind of person in that kind of environment, you're going to find opportunities. And in choosing the opportunity, like I did at HBO, even though the functional area wasn't right for me, even though the company wasn't that well defined at the time, the environment was perfect. And it was exactly what someone like me was looking for and needed to have the right opportunities to get ahead. And those are the things I always tell young people, look for those things environmentally. And if you do your job right, it will work. You will find an opportunity. A door will open. A young man, Andy Kaplan, found me and opened the door for me. And then I drove a truck through it. And that's in successful stories, what you hear. People who have the potential, but aren't sure exactly what to do or how to get there and how to mine all that potential. And a door opens and you go. And um, I tell people, just think about that when you think about jobs and careers and where you should be and where you shouldn't. The other thing I learned uh, at the time when I got to HBO, uh, the gentleman who helped me get out of finance and encouraged me to get into an operating group, his name was Jeffrey Bucus. He became the CEO of all of Time Warner. Brilliant, brilliant, once in a lifetime man. And, and, he, and he changed my career for me when I met him. Jeff used to talk about the hockey stick theory of compensation. And that is uh, if the x-axis is time and the y-axis is money, you start by, at the tip of the blade and you move along the blade and a number of years can go by as you move along that blade and it's not increasing at a great rate. All of a sudden you hit the stick and in a very short period of time, your compensation can double, triple, quadruple and more. And what he was saying was position yourself, get into the right place. Don't worry for a while where you're going if you can see the hockey stick in front of you. And if you can, at some point when the break comes through, your compensation will double, triple, quadruple. When you get to that point where your performance and your ability to contribute to revenues and profits makes a difference, 
you'll be flying up that stick. And um, he was exactly right. And I tell that to people all the time also, because it's about being in the right place at the right time, not being in where you think you want to be right now, because there's no instant gratification, but it can work and it can work big for people if they follow the path the right way. Of course, you have to put in the work, right? You have to put in the time, the energy, the effort, the people all the way up at the top, like you, you know, yourself uh, now, at least it, it took them a very long time to get there. They didn't mm -hmm. just immediately come out of college and they were an MBA and then they worked somewhere for a year and they worked hard and someone's like, all right, here's a $50,000 raise. That's not how it works. Yeah. You have to put in the time, the energy, the effort. You have to grow your network, grow your relationships and do everything on that end yes. to continue to pursue. And then eventually when you hit that tipping point, that hockey stick, uh, it really does vault up for you. And you know what else? There's a big difference between knowledge and wisdom. You can study, you can be smart, you can have all the knowledge in the world, but wisdom is what true business leaders have, the people who are most successful. Wisdom takes some experience. Um, now, sometimes you can get 10 years of experience in one year, like I did when I started HBO Pay-Per-View, um, and, you, and you, you cram a lot of uh, wisdom in, but you need wisdom. You can only get there by being exposed to the right things and living them and breathing them and feeling them in your gut. With that comes a lot of butterflies um, and, and very little sleep, but it's a great thing. And wisdom is what you have to achieve if you really want to be one of the top business leaders. And I mean, I completely agree. And hopefully I'll, uh, you know, hopefully I can gain a little bit of that wisdom through you today and everyone else listening can too. And I think, you know, you talk about those butterflies, which is really interesting. And that's something that I learned a couple of years back is, you have, you know, you can either call them nervous butterflies, mm -hmm. anxious butterflies, or you can call them excited butterflies. Mm -hmm. And you can take those butterflies and use them rather than have them hold you back. You can push that energy and that effort into whatever you're doing, which I always think is very important and taking advantage of it rather than sitting back and just, you know, kind of crumbling down, you know, use that energy, run with it, see what happens. That's always very important. What you learn is everybody gets those butterflies. Everybody at every level, no matter what the situation is, everybody hits some situation where for them, it becomes butterflies. And it's not a sign of fear and it shouldn't bring anxiety. Those butterflies come with opportunity. And um, every time I felt those butterflies, I knew it meant there was a great opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I just looked ahead and said, uh, the other thing is I worked in a company where management rewarded failure. I know that sounds strange. They knew that you had to take a risk, which meant the chance of failure in order to become successful. Uh, if you have a fear of failure and if you don't go against failure, then, and if you really don't experience failures, it's going to be very hard to, to, to be as successful as you'd like to be. Michael Fuchs, the chairman of HBO, when I was a young man at HBO, he used to say to me, don't be afraid to fail. You just go. He says, I know you're good enough that you're going to succeed. And if you fail along the way, just calculate it, take calculated gambles so that when those failures do occur, they fit in a place and they don't overcome and overwhelm or, and cause a business to close. And uh, those were great words of wisdom. Obviously, Michael experienced that himself when he was working up and growing HBO. And, and uh, I mean, what did he do at HBO? He took movies from movie studios and he packaged them with the brand name HBO and sold them. And that became HBO's initial success in the early years before they had original programming. It was mm -hmm. brilliant and it took a lot of guts. But um, Michael had those butterflies. He overcame them and he always told me, go for it. Don't worry about it. Even if you fail, you're going to win.
That's incredible, man. Yeah, yeah, I mean, looking at what HBO has become, uh, you know, a behemoth of, you know, premium cable and, you know, incredible content, the original programming that we all know and love. Uh, obviously, the sports with, with boxing, I don't think they have too, too much boxing anymore, especially with right. ESPN no Plus and everything, mm-hmm. unfortunately. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's incredible. And, you know, as you were saying, you know, the opportunities, you have to look for those opportunities. You have to look for those calculated gambles, those calculated risks. How did you, what was, you know, what, what were those first couple ones like for you? And what were those calculated risks that really helped catapult you, as you said, in one year to learn 10 years worth of business? Yeah. So as I said, I, when I first got to HBO, I worked in the finance department. The CFO was Jeffrey Bucus, And Jeff used to say that um, General Foods was a company with a thousand products. And that meant that each of those product lines was run by the product manager, the marketing department. HBO basically was a one product uh, company at the time. And it had functional areas as opposed to many products and product managers. And Jeff said in a company that's growing as fast as HBO was in such an unstructured environment, the finance department can play an incredible role. Get in there, see everything, look at everything, help the operating people um, develop sophisticated thought processes about how to spend money and how to make money and about how they can earn a return on the investment of the company's resources and assets. And he sent me from division to division, from the sales department to the marketing department, to the satellite operations department, where I did lease versus buy analysis on all the satellites HBO needed, to the programming department in the movie area where we analyzed whether we should be buying movies on a fixed cost or a variable cost basis which was an enormous uh, decision because um, if you bought them on a fixed cost basis and you were successful with your volume, you'd have a huge profit. Um, but if your growth slowed, it would, it would really hurt your profit. So um, whereas on a variable cost basis, you lock in your profit margins. So I had great experiences. I got to the sports department, a man named Seth Abraham, a legend in the sports business. Was there I was going to say, I've heard that name once or twice. Seth was a legend in the business and also someone who took a lot of risks and who who loved getting in there with the big boys and and making it happen. He said to me, Mark, I'd like you to do a study of the boxing business and let me know what you think and what you conclude. So I began at the time HBO had uh, a young heavyweight fighter named Mike Tyson. And uh, yeah, they were, he was in, I think he was about 15 to 18 fights into his career. Okay. He hadn't even, hadn't even become heavyweight champion yet. And uh, his, he was getting uh, nearly $3 million license fee per fight, which at that point, still is at that point, was an incredible amount of money. And uh, the deal was coming up. So I went out and studied the marketplace. And interestingly, at the time, most big fights, the biggest fights that today are the big pay-per-view blockbusters, back then they were all on closed circuit television. You had to get in your car and drive to stadiums and arenas, not sports bars and restaurants. And you had to sit in this enormous area with this screen that was felt like it was a mile away. These enormous loudspeakers half a mile away from you playing sound that you could barely hear and understand and uh, food and beverages being thrown around the environment. And that's how you watched a big fight. And you had to pay each person that walked in. You, you had to pay your admission fee. Mm-hmm. So, but in six cities in America, there were these microwave dish antennas that were put on people's rooftops and in those homes, people were able to buy fights on a per night basis. I found out and calculated that there was more revenue being generated from the people in those six cities than we were paying at HBO for the entire nation's rights for Mike Tyson fights. Wow. And I said, Seth, if we don't get into that business, even defensively, 
we're going to be out of business. I wrote the business plan and said, we need to launch pay-per-view. Uh, company got approved internally. Uh, I left my finance position and went over with Seth and, uh, uh, and Lou DiBella, who uh, became also one of the real leaders in the sport of boxing for 25 years that followed. And um, he ran the HBO boxing business. I ran the pay-per-view business. And uh, together, uh, we launched in April 1991. In fact, uh, just yesterday, April 19th, was the 29th anniversary of the launch of pay-per-view as we know it today. Vander Holyfield versus George Foreman at Trump Plaza. We worked with Donald Trump, then CEO of, uh, of the hotels. I worked with Dan Duva, who promoted Evander Holyfield, Bob Arum, who promoted George Foreman. And that was the very first fight we did on HBO pay-per-view. We paid, now we were paying, I told you, $3 million for Mike Tyson fights. With expenses for marketing and production, we paid a total of nearly $34 million for that first fight. And Seth said, Mark, it's your baby. Try to generate $35 million if you can. And uh, I started running around the country talking to cable operators. At the time, there was no direct TV or dish network satellites. There mm -hmm. was no telcos, no internet, no over the top, no streaming. The only way to get the product was cable TV. And, at the, and interestingly, the way you got premium TV services like HBO and Showtime was uh, the cable guy used to climb up the pole and put uh, a trap, a little filter. Mm -hmm. uh, it was either called a positive trap or a negative trap, depending if, if it were stopping uh, the pay, pay TV services from coming in or whether it was opening the, the spigot to let them come in. And, uh, but there were no boxes in, in people's homes, no hardware. Pay-per-view required a special box. So I said, well, then how do you serve pay-per-view? And they said, well, there's really none of it. So these boxes, we, we have about enough to satisfy 10% of the homes in the United States. And I, I went back to my office and I think I wet my pants and I said, oh my God, we're going to lose a fortune and we're going to be out of business. I didn't think we could do a hundred thousand buys and we needed to do a couple of million to make our money back. And I remember telling uh, Bob Arum and Seth Abraham and they said, well, young man, then you better get to work because we have four months to make this happen. So I started to run around the country and ask cable operators. Again, I had no idea what to do and I had no business experience other than work my father's luncheonettes, no real experience. Mm -hmm. And a Wharton MBA was great, but it didn't help me for that. And I said, what do we have to do to get these boxes installed immediately and in huge number? And the cable operator said, well, we need to have a flow of programming that guarantees a cash flow. So I went back to New York and we put into place immediately a monthly pay-per-view fight series. Not at the time, the biggest fights, well, our fight was selling for $35 the night we premiere on April 19th. We decided to put a 1995 price tag on the smaller monthly fights. I went out to the cable industry and they all said, great, you guarantee us 12 fights a year, we're in. By the time we launched that night on April 19th, there were 16 million boxes. Um, we did an 8% buy rate, sold 1.4 million pay-per-view buys of $35 million, generated $53 million in one night. I remember Bob Aaron saying that if he had any idea, even though we paid 10 times more than anybody ever paid for a fight, if he had any idea we were going to 53 million, I never would have sold it to you for 34. But um, that's okay. We made a profit. And that was the night pay-per-view was born. And it launched uh, a career for me uh, that uh, you know, changed my career, changed my life and my family's life. 
And um, I never used the word work again, even until today, mm -hmm. since April of uh, 1991. It was, it's been so much fun. I had 25 years, 190 fights, um, the biggest fights, the greatest fights, the best fights with the best fighters of the last uh, 25 years. And the lessons I learned along the way, oh my God. For example, in my 25 years, I worked through four different generations of fighters. The first generation of fighters were the heavyweights, Holyfield, Tyson, Lennox Lewis, Riddick Bowe, George Foreman. And um, we had a great uh, series of fights with them for, for a number of years. But as they started to get to the back end of their careers, and we had to see that the next chapter and what the next great era would be, along came Oscar De La Hoya, uh, Felix Trinidad, Miguel Cotto, Fernando Vargas, fighters in that weight class, and uh, Shane Mosley. And we did a series of fights with those guys, ended up doing 20 or 30 fights with each of them. Following those fighters, came two young men who would change pay-per-view forever, Floyd Mayweather and Manny Pacquiao. And I did about 25 pay-per-view fights with each of them and uh, did business that we never expected to do. Uh, after that came a few young men named Canelo Alvarez, Gennady Golovkin, Andre Ward. Um, and that really carried four generations of fighters, carried 25 years of, of business and a leadership position. Uh, I also worked through many, many generations of, of changes in distribution. We started out, as I said, with just cable television. A few years after that became the birth of uh, satellite TV, direct TV and dish network. Mm -hmm. And I remember at the time saying to direct TV that they could not carry our pay-per-view fights unless they would buy satellite insurance to cover the entire nation's buys from every cable operator. So that in the event that their signal failed and it became available for free to every home in America that night, we could protect our revenue stream. Mm -hmm. And we had to find a company to insure that. And I remember the insurance company saying, are you crazy? And direct, the cable operator said, thank God, we love that position. And DirecTV said, there's no way we're doing that. I said, well, I can't license you unless you're going to do that. So make a long story short, they licensed us. Uh, we licensed them. They carried the fight. Satellite launched. The same thing happened years later when the telcos came in and people started to have uh, Verizon, AT&T, and others in their homes. Um, then we moved to internet, then to uh, streaming and over the top. Um, it was just a great, great, great time. And I worked through technology. We also worked through a lot of consumer technology. Mm -hmm. We went from analog cable to digital cable. We went from standard definition signals, uh, which used to be a different ratio than the current 16-9 uh, ratio, uh, to, uh, you know, it was a much smaller picture, much narrower, uh, which for sports actually, uh, when high, and high definition came into play, added tremendous, tremendous visibility to the field and to the experience at home. We went from uh, a regular uh, analog sound to digital sound and uh, big screen televisions, uh, surround sound systems in people's homes. And as time went on, all of those things made the pay-per-view experience a greater one and a more valuable one. And I realized that. And we used to market the attributes all the time that you can mm -hmm. stay home in the comfort of your living room, uh, invite over 10 or 12 of your friends and family members, have a cost per person that's less than the cost of a ticket to a movie theater, 
have a, a collegial uh, uh, experience full of camaraderie uh, and just have a wonderful night together. And so the idea of paying for product when it was the best, those barriers were, were, were eliminated. And mm -hmm. people said, this is a great value proposition. I love this. And people started to think of it like a Super Bowl experience that they associated with the biggest fights and the biggest events. And marketing, understanding that equation and marketing that led to success through many, many generations of fighters, technology, and uh, changes in the consumer's household. So a lot of lessons over many, many, many years. And uh, I had to always be a few steps ahead of them and motivate an industry to, to stay ahead with me because that is how I stayed on top. Believe me, there were people shooting at that perch. They were ready to gun me down every time they could, but we stayed on top for 25 years. And um, it was a, a great run and a, a, an a lifetime of experience. I think it's just so cool. I just get this opportunity to just ask you just questions that come to mind because again, you, you've had, as you said, you've been through four, you know, you've been through generations of fighters, generations of consumer, you know, insight and, uh, you know, consumption methods. You've been through generations of how, um, you know, technology and all that mm -hmm. aspect of it works. I'm sure the marketing has changed many times over. I'm sure that's been multiple, way yes. more than four generations of marketing. Yes. And it's just, it's so interesting. And, and you know, I, I really love the point you made a couple of minutes ago saying, you know, you, you never worked again. It was just yeah. activity you got paid for. You got yeah. to hang out. You got to yeah. do your thing. Yes, of course, you had a lot to do. And I'm sure there was stress at times, but I'm sure you loved every second of it just because you got to do this. You didn't have to do any of it. You got to do it. And yeah. I do want to go back to the beginning of the story a little bit. You know, as you were saying with, you know, creating these opportunities and taking these risks, what was your mindset through that process? Because again, you know, you kind of went over, you know, that, that stretch run for a little while and, you know, kind of mm -hmm. how... I always want to make sure I understand people's mindset and understand, you know, how did you, what were you thinking during that process? Cause it seems mm -hmm. like you at all costs, were going to get this to be done. Cause mm -hmm. how many people would have ran around to all the cable operators and been mm -hmm. like, all right, well we need boxes and houses. Can you do that? No. Oh, okay. We can't do it. Uh, but no, you clearly took it the extra 10, 12 miles at that point yeah. to make sure something like this could get done. So it seems like you had this mindset throughout your entire career, but what would you, I guess, what would you call that mindset that you've had? Well, you know, when I went to Wharton, I used, I studied entrepreneurship and my goal was to be an entrepreneur within a larger corporation where the resources would be available to me to do some great things, but still the environment would allow for uh, hard work, creativity and specifically being rewarded for it. HBO is the poster child for an entrepreneurship within a large corporation. It was the vision of Time Inc., which became Time Warner, which became Time Warner Turner, uh, you know, which then you know, became uh, AT&T, Time Warner. And um, I was blessed to be in an environment like that where people were encouraged every day to think big and start new things and be comfortable with changes in whether it was fighters or technology or marketing or consumers or deal structures. Um, I also spent a lot of time thinking about how to uh, simplify the risk and take some of the elements of risk out of the equation. And I, I was a good student. And I, I studied the market, I studied the, the distribution models, I studied technologies. For example, when I started at HBO Pay-Per-View, which was then called TVKO, 
when I went back to the industry and said, we're going to provide uh, a fight a month for two years, I also said at the time that in order to do this, I would like to have Saturday nights and a, and a, and a premium Saturday night that work for our schedule um, so that I can maximize the odds of being of bringing success to you, the cable operator. Mm-hmm. And uh, what that basically did was give me the best screens and the best nights in the movie theater, so to speak, called the consumer's home. Because it really was, it, it was, I called it the electronic arena. We were bringing the sports arena into your living room. But I knew if we didn't get the best Saturdays and the best time at 9, 9 p.m., um, if we were pushed back to Tuesday or Wednesday night, and if we, and if we were, didn't get 9 p.m., if we had to run at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, we could never maximize our revenues. And I had a vision of an environment that I wanted to create where it was pay-per-view was synonymous with big fights, big events, a Super Bowl-like environment. Um, so I put that list together and then went out to the industry and we made a deal on those parameters and we made those trades. So that was a way to take a lot of the element of risk uh, out of the equation. Also along the way, our very first fight, Holyfield versus Foreman, we did 1.4 million buys, $53 million. The next month, we had a great fight, two undefeated fighters, two great champions, both Hall of Fame fighters, James Tony and Michael Nunn. And we did the fight under a bridge of five points in Iowa. It was like literally the field of dreams. And uh, it was $19.95, two great middleweights. And I remember sitting in the office thinking, how many buys might we do? We just did 1.4 million. And we we thought, well, maybe we'll do 25% of that. Who knew? But that felt like a good number. Didn't have time to do research because we were running planning fights for a year. So we do the fight, 19,000 buys. 19,000 buys after 1.4 million. Believe me, it wasn't one iota of a percentage of the quality of a fight the prior month. What I learned was that pay-per-view was a business of hits and misses, as Seth Abraham used to say. And if you didn't have the makings of a hit, it wasn't pay-per-view worthy. Mm -hmm. And it belonged more appropriately on the HBO monthly subscription service where the best fights in the world that weren't generating, you know, 50 to 100 million or more a night uh, should be month in, month out, every month for people paying a monthly subscription price. That was an incredible lesson, something I never forgot the rest of my life because that was another way to take risk out of the equation. Make sure that you have a fight that's not just worthy of people's time, but that's worthy of the money, something where they truly receive value. And it's an event where people say, I'm not going out Saturday night. I'm staying home. I'm having people over. I'm going to somebody else's house. We're watching the fight. And I used to call my brothers all the time and say, are you guys going to watch the fight? Would you stay home for this fight? And when they told me, yes, I knew I had a pay-per-view fight mm-hmm. because they weren't big boxing fans. They were fans of big boxing and nice. big, yep. big distinction. Mm-hmm. And uh, I used to always use my brothers as the litmus test uh, for, for the fights, you know, and then I learned to add others to the group because, uh, you know, we had fights that appealed to African-Americans, fights that appealed to Latinos, um, all types of uh, market segmentations. So I had my kitchen cabinet of people I would call up and say, does this one meet the litmus test for you? But that also took a lot of the risk out of the equation. We then went at the deal structures. We, you know, in the early days, we used to buy a fight, pay a huge amount of money, and then pray we did enough buys. And if we did, we would make a big fat profit window and then the rest of the money would go back to the fighters and the promoters. And we also used to take a, a big share of the money from the cable industry. So I suddenly realized, you know, if we change the deal structures 
and uh, well, a, a gentleman at the time named Shelley Finkel, who was the manager of Evander Holyfield and other great fighters, and today still manages fighters. He said to me, Mark, a great lesson. You're better off making less money lots of times under a, a low risk profile than trying to make a, a, a tremendous amount of money once or twice, because particularly in a big corporation, like I was, HBO pay-per-view was housed within HBO Time Warner. If you lose a lot of money, somebody could say, you know what? It's over. We're not doing this business anymore. Mm -hmm. So we went and changed the deal structure. We did what we call distribution deals with promoters. Once they got the confidence that if I was able to distribute and market a product, I could generate a certain amount of buys. And we used to develop uh, predictive models because we did enough fights at some point that we could mm -hmm. predict very closely, usually within 5%, the number of buys that would occur for a fight and therefore the amount of revenue. When promoters got comfortable and confident in, in our ability to do those projections, they said, you know what? We don't need your guarantees and we don't want you to have a big profit margin. So we started to work for distribution fees. We were making profits on every fight from the promoter side of the equation and from the cable operator side of the mm -hmm. equation. And at the same time, we were motivating promoters who were keeping a larger share in cable operators who could, could, could now afford more boxes and get us to 50 to, or 100 million uh, pay-per-view households uh, to carry more product. So again, significantly lowered the risk. So at every different level, I looked as a student to reduce risk within what was considered a risky environment. And it changed the model. Every time we took a step and another step and a third and a fourth step, and lowered the risk hurdles, more and more people came on board and uh, we had a, it turned into a very, very successful business for 25 years while I was at HBO. Student of the game, right? Yeah. You got You have to always be learning. Um, you never, if you, if you ever stop learning, you're doing something wrong. To this and I think day, every day is a learning experience, every I th day. I think it's great how you've been able to look at it too, just always improving too, right? There's never oh, just, yeah. it's never seemed like you got complacent or you got not comfortable because you probably got comfortable at some point because it was always in flux or at least you were always looking for ways to just continuously improve. Yes. And I just think it's so, or again, remember where this story started at, at Birdseye, right? Mm -hmm. You were a financial analyst at Birdseye yeah. and working with farmers, <laughs> as you said, and now, you know, you're, you're, um, you know, at the top of this incredible business operation with, within this, you know, growing company over the last yeah. you know 20 something years. And you've been able to, do so much and, and still, you know, up, up to the end, it sounds like you were allowed to just continue and continue yeah. just improving and finding new ways. And, and, you know, again, when we're looking at the Floyd Mayweather's and the Manny Pacquiao's, you mm -hmm. know, we all know how much money Floyd Mayweather make. It's a very easy Google search. It's astronomical. And you yeah. played a gigantic part of that, which I just think is incredible. Well, you know, I, a couple of things. So I've worked with uh, two of the greatest entrepreneurs in American business history, Bob Arum and Don King. And I learned a long time ago that uh, to be transparent and uh, be straightforward and honest in my business relations and to be fair, always make fair and reasonable deals. That was my credo. Mm. I earned the trust of Aaron and King. And as a result, they used to let me sit on their side of the table. They didn't look at it with me as a negotiation mm -hmm. opposite side of the table. We were together. I was there to help them push forward the careers of the fighters they promoted and maximize the revenues that they, they and their fighters would achieve. 
Um, HBO got the benefit of having not only those fights on pay-per-view, but having other fights from all of those great fighters on the monthly HBO subscription service because very few of them fought exclusively on pay-per-view. Mm-hmm. Uh, it helped, so it helped get HBO a lot of product and competitively because we had the best pay-per-view machine for many, many years. Um, it competitively brought promoters to HBO. And because I work with the promoters in a way that earned their confidence, they wanted to work with us at HBO and they wanted to work with, with my team. And uh, it was, that was a very, very important part of the equation. And thankfully, I worked for a company that said, here's the rope to work with those guys. Here's the flexibility to make deals with them, to keep them with us. And so there were a lot of parts to that equation. You know, I happened to be one employee in a big company, took a lot of very talented, very talented people. You know, Lou DiBella was incredible at his job at programming, buying fights. Ross Greenberg was a genius at producing fights. Uh, We had a gentleman named Ray Stallone in our public relations department. Uh, We had so many great, talented people over the years, generation after generation, that allowed us to be great. And it enabled me with those types of resources around, you know, my peers and my associates and teammates allowed me to be even greater and achieve greater heights. Um, So, you know, a lot of what I was able to do was because of the team that I was on and my teammates. But by doing all of those pieces and always thinking about that and studying that, and knowing what it would take to be successful. That's what resulted in great success. And that's what kept us on top for 25 years. And, uh, you know, Showtime had great years and, and they had Mike Tyson for a number of years that we didn't um, at HBO and, and they had great success. And, and uh, you know, Ken Hirschman was there, uh, Jay Larkin, Mark Greenberg, um, Steven Espinoza, who's there now. They have had some great folks and great leaders over the years who, by the way, I got to work with very closely. In 2002, when we made Lennox Lewis versus Mike Tyson, I spent an incredible amount of time working with uh, Mark Greenberg, Jay Larkin, Ken Hirschman in his position then as an attorney, you know, and with Ross Greenberg on my team to negotiate to make the Lewis Tyson fight. And if you, even though we were incredible competitors, if you couldn't lower the bar and, and let your guard down a little bit and sit together and inspire confidence with one another in achieving that goal. We used to talk about understand the moment in history here, understand what we're about to do. You know, we may never pass this way again, as Seals and Crofts used to sing a long time ago. And um, we did it then. And the same thing came back in 2015, uh, many, many years later, but a very special fight again when the Mayweather Pacquiao opportunity came up. This time, Mayweather on the Showtime side, Pacquiao on the HBO side. It took a lot of work that I did with Steven Espinoza, months of work. And um, Ken Hirschman and I and Steven Espinoza and a number of others had to work together and negotiate to bring another historic fight to the table. It's what you do when you want to make great things happen and when you want to make history. And, uh, you know, I worked with the right people and the right teammates in the right industry for the right corporation with the right promoters, uh, with athletes in an entrepreneurial industry, all of those things around me uh, that I was able to see and identify. But there were all those situations and all those people enabled greatness and history to be made. And um, it it was just an incredible once in a lifetime opportunity. And I'm thankful to everybody that was there with me along the way.
And you got to enjoy every second of it. Every and I just think second. It's so important too, you know, as you said, you know, you, all of these moving parts, all of these stars had to align, but you also had to see them align. You also had to go out and do the work. So I know you didn't, you didn't work as you said, but yeah. you had to put in that energy, time and effort to make sure all of these yeah. things did happen. And you very, very clearly did that. And I think it's, you know, it's incredible, man. Don King used to say, what is, what is sleep, but a dream? And, uh, you know, I, I always told people, I don't want to dream. I want to make reality happen. Yep. I want to make history happen. So, um, and, and luckily for my mother and father, uh, I inherited the genes that didn't require more than four or five hours sleep most nights Good and sometimes you. less than that. So um, I remember once a great CEO of Time Warner uh, had lunch with me and uh, I asked him, I said, so what separates the men from the boys and, and, and the women from the girls? And uh, he said, I'll tell you what does the ability to work without sleep. He says, because there's a lot of great people at the top, more than one, more than you can count on your fingers and toes. But some of them actually can work almost 24 hours a day. And sometimes that is what makes the difference. If you look at the success that uh, Bob Arum and Don King realized, many times it was because they worked longer and harder than others. And I didn't have to get much sleep and I worked a lot of hours, put in a lot of hours. Um, and uh, it, sometimes it made the difference. I love it. Do what you got to do. That's what coffee yeah. is made for, right? Just when your alarm goes off, just get up, yeah. get up. I, I never used an alarm once. Never Whoa. in my life one day did I ever have an alarm. Good I didn't need it. My body just got up uh, six o'clock. My body woke me up. No matter what time I went to sleep, I, I could go to sleep at uh, 11 or I could go to sleep at 3 a.m. Six o'clock, I woke up. So it was both a curse and a blessing. I was going to um, say that yeah. goes both ways. I'm sure sometimes yeah, you know, that's great. Other times, oof. Yeah, you learn, you know, I learned over the years to um, tolerate being tired, to tolerate ambiguity and uncertainty, um, to tolerate a certain amount of risk. It wasn't my personal risk like it was for the promoters and the fighters who were putting themselves mm -hmm. at risk every time yeah. they got in the ring. But it was career risk and business risk sometimes, uh, job risk. Um, you know, I, I learned to put those things to the side so I was able to really focus and, and know from again, this is, you know, I talk about wisdom versus knowledge to know through wisdom that if you do those things, you will succeed and you'll overcome those obstacles. So I learned not to fear them. And uh, it was a great uh, energizer for me and a great source of fuel to help me get through the, the years and the decades when I was at HBO. It's absolutely incredible. And uh, Mark, I'm confident very confident I could ask you questions for the next four hours and we would mm -hmm. have an incredible time, but I know you kind of have stuff that you need to do. Um, I do want to a couple more, like one more question on HBO. Then I obviously want to touch sure. upon what you're doing now mm -hmm. with now HBO, not in the boxing arena for lack mm -hmm. of a better term anymore. What does that, how do you like, what is that? You know, you built this entire empire over mm -hmm. 25 years and, you know, just very recently, if I'm not mistaken is when they pretty much said, you know, we're not in boxing anymore. Yeah. How'd that make you feel? Uh, well, it was sad. It was, it was very sad, but it had nothing to do with me. I wasn't sad because I was there or I played a role in it. I was sad because um, a lot of history was made there. You know, the, some incredible talent in the ring, the fighters I mentioned before, out of the ring in the offices, um, that, that came through the, the, the walls uh, of HBO. You know, the, the, those walls were alive with energy. And some of the greatest uh, moments in, in boxing history that took place for so long. And um, so I was sad to see an era end, but you know, all eras come to an end. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Um, and at HBO, it started to become apparent that as the demographics of the subscriber base changed, that boxing just wasn't as important for HBO's subscribers. Mm -hmm. You know, for Showtime yeah. subscribers, it's still very important. Steven Espinosa talks about that all the time, and that's why he and his company pursue it with the passion and success that they do. But at HBO, it just wasn't uh, delivering quite as effectively. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, that time come. I, when I left in 2015, uh, you could see that that time might come. Um, you know, I, I knew that. I didn't talk much about it. I kept it within. But I had a, a sense that the, those times were coming. Um, but, uh, you know, I learned to look forward, not backwards. And I spent a lot of time even, you know, reminiscing with colleagues of mine. Just yesterday, the day that was the 29th anniversary of the Holyfield Foreman fight, you know, I, I spoke with and shared uh, social media exchanges with a number of colleagues that I spent time with over the years at HBO. And um, they were the greatest of days, the greatest of months, and the greatest of years in, in, in for most of us. And, uh, you know, I, I just look back with a big smile and, and fond memories. I love it. And yeah, exactly. As you said, all eras come to an end, but that yeah. doesn't mean you can't build another empire. So tell us, tell us a little bit about what you're doing with uh, Mark Taffet Media and uh, sure. the MMA Pro League. Yeah, well, a couple of things. So when I left HBO, I said, you know what? It's, uh, it's a blessing to have the opportunity to have another chapter. And um, I had done great commerce at HBO, but it was commerce. Uh, and I wanted to do some things that to me now were going to be a little bit more meaningful other than the generation of the revenues and profits and the making of some history. I wanted to go on the other side of the, the table uh, with the athletes. Uh, I saw many athletes over the years that needed help. They needed help uh, and, and advice in making the right decisions in their career. They needed help in maximizing their opportunities and negotiating their deals um, in, in managing their money and making sure that the, you know, they have the right teams around them. Um, so I know there are many people who said you are crazy, but I decided to be uh, either an advisor or a manager. Mm -hmm. And uh, boy, you talk about being lucky, being fortunate. My first client, Clarissa Shields, my God. My goodness, I mean, yeah. I, I, I stalked that young woman, I have to admit it, um, shamelessly for six months until I finally got her to say, okay, okay, manage me, try it, let's do it. And um, I knew that Clarissa Shields was the greatest. Um, the only fighter I ever saw fight like Clarissa Shields was Floyd Mayweather. And I saw a lot of great fighters. Floyd had talent of a different world. And um, Clarissa has that. The people that talk all the time, you know, debate, is she the greatest of all time? There's no doubt she's the greatest female fighter of all time. She may be the best female fighter ever, uh, no matter how far you look going forward. She's levels above everybody else in the field. And of course, I'm, people can say I'm jaded when I say that, but I wear my old HBO hat of having to look objectively from a distance at talent when I say that. Clarissa is a very special not once in a year, once, not once in a decade, once in a lifetime uh, athlete. To be able to help her achieve her dreams, knowing where she came from, she had just a terribly, terribly unfortunate uh, upbringing as a child, um, suffered through all types of abuse that is unimaginable to most of us, somehow came through it, didn't just survive, but thrived and won not one, but two Olympic gold medals. The only back-to-back back -to -back boxing gold medal winner in U.S. Olympic history? How is that possible? And she did that 
uh, when she was 17 and 21 years old. And now in three years, three and a half years since she's a pro, what she's accomplished, she's accomplished more than any man or woman has accomplished, not any man or woman, any woman and most men have accomplished in their careers. And uh, in winning titles in three weight divisions faster than any man in history, she's done what no one's ever done in this sport. She's incredible. And um, I get to work with her. I get to help her. Uh, I get to work with someone who I think has the ability to change uh, women's sports and sports like Billie Jean King did and mm -hmm. be a real trailblazer and a game changer. I can see that greatness in her. Um, and I hope she can see it and we can mine it and, 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 and make it a reality as well. Um, so that's why I got into the management game. And boy, it's been so much fun and it's been so rewarding to be able to accomplish so much in such a short period of time, not just for, for Clarissa, but to open doors for women. We, we've, been, we've played a great role in women having all of the television opportunities they now have. There's a long way to go, but Clarissa Shields has been on Showtime as a main event fighter six times. Wow. And now many other women are getting that opportunity. Uh, women are on most fight cards. Uh, women are now in some of the biggest fights in every year in the sport of boxing. Uh, Clarissa talks all the time glowingly about fighters like uh, Cecilia Brackus and Katie Taylor uh, and others, young women, Amanda Serrano. Of course, when it comes to competitiveness, when you have to face that fighter, she puts on a game face, gets in the ring and does what she has to do and, and will talk trash like anybody will mm -hmm. getting into a fight. But she loves every female fighter and she wants nothing but for every female fighter and for the whole sport to grow and achieve and open doors. And she wants to look back someday and say she was a part of that. I like being a part of that history. I like working with a, a history maker and a game changer like that. That's why we call it her story, not history. And um, that's why I became a manager. Also along the way, I met a young man with a lot of passion named Hani Darwish, who uh, has been a practitioner since he's a, a, a kid in MMA and has uh, been a fighter, a trainer, a manager, a promoter, uh, and is a black belt himself and worked with the great Henzo Gracie and was given his black belt by Henzo Gracie. So I, I've been working for a few years with Hani on the concept uh, MMA Pro League, which is uh, bringing these fighters back to the team environment where they all grew up and presenting uh, a, a team-based sport where the fighters fight for the night and the team with the biggest wins, the most wins, uh, gets the most points wins for the night and at the end of a season, the team wins. Very easy to follow. You know every match that's going to happen. You know every fight that's going to take place. Uh, even if you're not a fan of MMA, uh, you can follow this formula. We think it's something that um, will can change the future of MMA. And we're working hard to find uh, the financing, uh, people who share the same dream as us. Um, we're very patient and we're very focused. And uh, I hope those dreams come true uh, over the next year or two as well. I love it. So first to Clarissa, um, mm -hmm. being uh, working with Olympic athletes, I'm very familiar with her and what she's been able to do. And I think it's incredible. So kudos to you for uh, your words, not mine, stalking her for a couple months and being able mm -hmm. to secure that. And clearly, I mean, I'm, I, you know, it doesn't really make sense to me why she, why it took her, took her so long. If you told her all your accolades, I'm sure she would have jumped at the opportunity, but I'm sure she had her reservations for whatever reason, as we all do, but I'm sure, you know, what is it like being able to go up to some of these fighters and these athletes just be like, look at the network that I've built. Look at the, you know, the, the accomplishments that I've made. I, you can make it so much easier for people, obviously in an authentic way, you're not going to yeah. try and fit square pegs in round holes, but how much, 
and I know it's not easy because nothing's easy. It would be, it would be boring if it was, but how, how much, how much more fluid and how much quicker do these processes happen with your background, with your network, with your relationships that you already have? I'll tell you what's interesting. I mean, if you think about it, you know, I never forget uh, a number of years ago, one of my kids said to me, uh, she, my daughter, she was looking at uh, Paul McCartney. He was with Wings and he was singing a song. And I remember her saying, you know, it's one of those famous lines, same thing like, what did he do before that? Oh, goodness. And, you know, the lesson was, if you weren't there in 1964, mm-hmm. you didn't know who the Beatles were. Well, most of the fighters I talk to today, they don't know who Mark Taffet is in boxing. Mm-hmm. They just know that, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a persistent guy of, of many years more than them on this earth and that I'm interested in being their manager. So they have to do their research and do their Googling and talk to people. And yeah, they probably find out, okay, I see your background, it's great. Um, But I make it easy for them. I think I take half the percentage fee that most fighters take in the sport. Thank God, luckily for me, I'm not that worried about where my dinner is gonna come from each Mm -hmm. night. And particularly with young fighters, I want them to have as much of the money as possible. I always tell them you're not gonna get services for free because nobody should get anything for, for free. It's, you have to learn a value for every service you get to appreciate it. But I don't need to take those you know, uh, exorbitant percentages that many other managers take. I work with them and I, I show them the networks and the contacts that I have and I bring them to bear for these young fighters. And uh, yeah, they benefit from it. There's no doubt about it, but it's a blessing. It's my pleasure. And I pick very carefully the athletes that I work with. Uh, I pick athletes who I think can benefit from my specific experience. I pick athletes who have a dream. Uh, I pick athletes who I think are wonderful people. Um, Because as I said, I want to do meaningful things and I want to give back. And that means the recipient has to receive correctly and appropriately in order to say, let's go and let's do things. I want Mm -hmm. people with common visions and common values. Uh, And so far I've got that. I work with a young woman named Hannah Rankin. Uh, who lives in the UK. She's the uh, only uh, first, was the first uh, uh, female boxing champion uh, from Scotland. I work with a young man who's the only male professional boxer uh, in uh, Iceland right now. His nickname is the Ice Bear, uh, Gunnar Colbin Christensen. Uh, I helped work and advised, uh, helped work with and advised Otto Wallen and his team. Uh, Otto is a magnificent young man, just a, a lovely young man, and he almost beat Tyson Fury. Uh, they, they should have stopped that fight. The referees, Tyson was fortunate that the referees didn't stop it. Um, I get to work with people like him. I work with a young heavyweight from Detroit, sometimes named Jermaine Franklin. I'm not officially on the books with him, but I help he and his team. Mm-hmm. Uh, I work with a wonderful young promoter very often, Dimitri Salida, who uh, is just a, a wonderful soul with a big heart who wants to give back to the sport and to fighters. He was a professional fighter himself. Um, I work with John David Jackson, the trainer. I mean, just a magnificent man. You don't meet better people than him. Uh, Sugar Hill, uh, disciple of, relative of, uh, Manuel Stewart, who was one of my mentors at HBO for many, many years. Uh, Sugar Hill is in the the Kronk, the famous Kronk gym in Detroit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I work with people who I love to work with and choose to work with. The, the gentleman at Showtime that I work with, Stephen Espinosa, Gordon Hall, and his team. When you get to this point in your life and career and you can choose the people that you surround you, you, yourself with every day, uh, every day is a blessing. And that's why it's still not work. 
and I still get to work in an environment where I can give back and help uh, people like Dimitri and his company as a promoter, uh, trainers like John David and Sugar Hill and all of the fighters that I work with. Uh, I work with a, a, another young woman uh, from Sweden. Her name is Patricia Burkholz. She recently defeated Hannah Rankin. She's going to be uh, a great world champion. Uh, I advise on and off um, one of the 168-pound uh, champions in, in uh, women's boxing. Right now, she was a, a, a great uh, American Idol singer as well, which is how I started to work with her. And uh, she actually fought uh, Clarissa in Clarissa's uh, very, very first fight, Franchon Cruz, because uh, she's another young woman with dreams who comes from a, a tough place and wants to get ahead and, and achieve things in her life. Um, you work with people like that, it's never work. And, uh, and when you achieve things and you see how meaningful it is to all of those people and how it changes their lives, it's, it's, a, it's a blessing. It's a beautiful thing. That is fantastic. Mark, this has been absolutely incredible. Sincerely appreciate your time. I know it's very, uh, time is, is of the essence and it's very valuable to you. So I sincerely, sincerely appreciate you giving me a couple minutes. I guess I just have one last question for you. I hope it's sure. okay. What are, you know, you've accomplished so much as you've been talking about, you're helping others accomplish their goals and everything that you've been able to do. And you've given us a little bit of the backstory there. What are some of the future accomplishments you're looking for? You've done so much. You're, you know, mm. you, like what's, what's one thing you're still pointing to that, you know, you're just trying, you know, that's, that's the North yeah, star. That's what that, we're trying to get boy, to. What a great thing. You know, one, you know, something I've always believed in, but surely these times uh, the last few months uh, have reinforced greatly is uh, you know, even though I believe in, in the afterlife, you get to do it once on this mm -hmm. earth, this way, in this form. And uh, you got to make it great. You got to make it meaningful. You got to make it worthwhile. Um, I've been so, so blessed to be able to do the things I've done and work with the people I have. Um, uh, I still have a lot of energy. I've got two or three business ideas that I'm working on right now. Unfortunately, I'm not going to share them with you because I don't want to tip my hat for others in the very competitive marketplace. We'll talk, However, we'll talk about it off camera. How's that sound? Yeah, we'll do that for sure. <laughs> That's my pleasure. But I've got some great ideas. I think they're great ideas and I think they're going to get off the ground. Um, and I also have three uh, grandkids age three, six and nine and, and children in their thirties that I want to spend a lot of time with and give a lot to. And you know what? This coronavirus time has just reinforced in my mind uh, how much I miss being with them every day mm -hmm. and how much as a result, as soon as restrictions are lifted, I want to spend time with those members of my family, with some dear friends who are, as you learn, uh, not on this earth uh, forever. And uh, you got to make every day count. So I'm going to make sure I wake up and make every day count, but still do a few more things in business before I'm done. I love it. Mark Taffet, president of Mark Taffet Media and president of MMA Pro League and a former senior vice president of HBO Sports and Pay-Per-View. Mark, again, thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode with Mark Taffet. As I said, just absolutely incredible what he's been able to accomplish and how he's been able to accomplish it. The tenacity, the hard work, the value that he brings to the table clearly is not matched. So please make sure to follow Mark on all of his socials. Everything is in the show notes. Please also make sure to give us a five-star review wherever you're listening, but especially if you're listening on iTunes or Apple, that would be super, super helpful to help share more stories like Mark's. And thank you. I really do appreciate your time. It's the only thing we don't get more of, so thank you for giving me some of yours, and I hope you make it a wonderful day.